Hey everybody, a couple things before we begin. First is I'm sorry that this is going out a little bit late. It should be Monday night rather than Monday morning. My apologies. I've been working on this one and just trying to make it work. It's going to be a lot more political uh, about pretenders to the throne, and it's not as gritty, and I, I just couldn't really seem to make it fit together in a way that I was happy about, and I think I've just worked on it too much. At this point, it was scrap it or send it to you guys, and I just thought, you know what? I think you guys might appreciate it anyways, but if it's not for you, um, my apologies ahead of time. The other thing is that please continue to send us questions uh, for our grab bag episode that's going to be happening in November to celebrate our one year anniversary, which is absolutely insane to think that we've been doing this for a whole year. So thank you for your support. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is taken from the work Henry VII by Sean Cunningham. In 1491, England was set for a shock. Edward IV's youngest brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, was alive. And that was a problem for two reasons. Because one, if Richard was alive, then he was the rightful heir to the English throne. And two, he was already dead. Richard's father, Edward IV, and head of the House of York, had ruled as King of England since 1461, with only a short year break where he had been overthrown by the previous ruler, Henry VI, who was the head of the House of Lancaster. The two houses, Lancaster and York, had been at war since 1455, both claiming the throne of England. It had changed multiple times during this War of the Roses, named after the white and red roses that symbolized each house. When Edward IV died, the throne passed to his son, Edward V, who was Richard of Shrewsbury's brother. But Edward V had scarcely settled on the throne when in the summer of 1483, he was overthrown by Richard III of the House of York. Both Edward V and Richard of Shrewsbury were thrown into the Tower of London in 1483 and disappeared completely from history. The most plausible explanation is that the boys, ages 12 and 10, were executed in the Tower which would most certainly fit, many potential kings or queens had been executed to squash their lineage and make sure no one was left to contend the throne. Of course, no one could agree how they were executed. Thomas More wrote that the two had been smothered with pillows in their sleep. Spanish evidence in 1496 suggested that they had been killed by draining their blood from a bloodletting medical procedure which went far too long, the Spanish believed, intentionally. In 1674, the bones of two boys were discovered in the tower by workers who were rebuilding one of the staircases. They have never been identified as the pair, but speculation continues to abound. Now, none of this would have mattered for Richard III, because in 1485, two years into his reign, he was killed by Henry VII at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Henry VII of the House of Tudor ascended the throne, supplanting both the houses of York and Lancaster. Now, if all of this talk of different houses and lineages and kings sounds a little confusing, that's because it is. 
There's a reason that some people do entire academic careers off of just the lineage of the English kings. And if you think it's an awful time to be learning about English politics, just imagine the instability of living through it. Henry VII was the very first glimpse of what a stable English throne could look like, the first glimpse in 30 years. But even so, he was not well-beloved. He had been a virtual nobody until 1483. This distant contender for the throne of England exiled to France at a young age. But when Richard III took the throne, he was catapulted into the spotlight by political opponents of Richard. Sean Cunningham writes, quote, In 28 months, Henry would progress from the status of a prisoner dependent on the goodwill of others to become the King of England. This startling transformation compensated for the long years of abandonment, disappointment, and false hope that had marked the 26 years of his life since 1457. End quote. In 1485, basically on the run in France and Brittany and likely to be sold to Richard III, he mounted a desperate invasion of England and won. Suddenly he, virtually a foreigner with no memory of England, surrounded by enemies and allies who have known him for an average of 18 months, is the supreme ruler of England. He's hated in degrees by most every noble family in England. Talk about a powder keg. Quickly, he worked to fight the rebels and conspirators already plotting to place a Yorkist back on the throne. All through the rest of the 1480s, he conducted pacifications of regions, journeying with his court, conducting diplomacy, and improving his reputation. He married Elizabeth of York to tie the York house to his. His reign seemed to be stabilizing. So when Richard of Shrewsbury reappears on the scene... Well, that powder keg everyone was starting to forget about, it exploded. And if all of this wasn't complicated conspiracy for you, it's about to get wild. Because this Richard of Shrewsbury was protesting that he wasn't even Richard. And to understand why, we have to understand the history behind the pretenders. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. You ever think you know what a word means and it turns out you're wrong? Like, you read a word in context and you go, oh, I know what that means now, but then you use it later in public and it turns out you were completely off base. I can really painfully remember the time I mixed up the words organism and orgasm in 8th grade English class. <sighs> but the point being, there's certain words in history that get thrown around and you just sort of go along with them, not realizing that their definition is a lot different than you imagined. I'm going to guess that you, listener, might not know what a pretender is. Like, you might think you know the definition. Let me use it in a sentence. The pretender to the throne claimed that he was the rightful king. So you, probably like me, are thinking, yeah, it's a person who thinks he's the rightful heir to the throne, but he's not. That's why he's called a pretender. He's pretending. And you'd be correct. Except, in some cases, take it one step farther. Because historically... Many pretenders don't just pretend that they are rightful heirs to the throne, although we use the term pejoratively to include those. In many cases, they pretend they're historical people with a right to the throne. 
We've discussed on this podcast before the difficulty in establishing identity in the Middle Ages. There's very few mirrors that existed, few drawings or paintings, and it can be extremely difficult to decide whether a person is really who they are. Heck, Elizabeth I refused to consider anyone's hand in marriage unless they showed up at her court in person because she didn't even trust the paintings to do them justice. And we have a whole episode on the case of Martin Guerre, the French peasant who was able to pass off being another peasant for a period of a few years, even going so far as to marry the wife of the man he was impersonating. But there have been many false pretenders in history, people claiming to be resurgent monarchs who disappeared or died under these mysterious circumstances. Yemelin Pugachev claimed to be Peter III of Russia. Kaspar Hauser claimed to be the stillborn son of Karl, Grand Duke of Baden. Henry VII had already dealt with one false pretender who claimed to be the Earl of Warwick in 1487. And you'd be surprised, this could happen quite often. Over 30 people claimed to be Louis XVII of France at one point in time or another. Often these claimants would be used by existing conspirators to ramp up a plot against the throne. And many times, they were unwitting and even unwilling pawns in the affair. Such is the case of Perkin Warbeck. Now, we know very little about Perkin Warbeck. We do know that he appeared on the scene in Cork, Ireland in November 1491 at the age of 17. He claimed he was from Ternay, Belgium, the son of the comptroller in the area, basically the accountant of the city. His mother took him to Antwerp at the age of 10 to learn Dutch, and he apprenticed all around Europe for merchants in Portugal, Brittany, the Netherlands. In Cork, he came ashore the docks in fine silk clothes, and bystanders immediately proclaimed him as Richard of Shrewsbury. In fact, he immediately protested. Why would they do this? Did he just look like Shrewsbury? I mean, he looked apart in his clothes, but it doesn't make much sense to just start claiming every rich-looking man as a long-lost claimant to the throne. Almost all historians agree that he was part of a much larger conspiracy to overthrow Henry VII, but exactly how involved he was is up for debate. You see, Charles VIII of France wanted to depose Henry for various reasons, the chief being that the two countries were rivals. The threads of the conspiracy had begun as early as 1488, with Henry's invasion of the neighboring country of Brittany. In 1490, new coins had already been minted with Richard of Shrewsbury's image in Burgundy, so it seems clear that the French had at least been fostering such a conspiracy before Perkin Warbeck appeared in Cork, Ireland, a year later. But Warbeck claimed in the beginning that he was not Richard, just some minor courtier. What gives? Perhaps Warbeck was simply acting the part, as any true pretender wouldn't want to just come ashore claiming, Hey, I'm the rightful true king. That's an easy way to end up on the chopping block. Maybe he wanted to keep on the down low, as that's what the real Richard would do. But Cunningham argues that Warbeck wasn't a willing participant. He says, quote, Despite his protests, bystanders proclaimed Warbeck as a Yorkist prince. This confusion was probably an invention of the existing plot designed to stir up Yorkist sympathies. If you were truly Richard, then this would have been the time to proclaim his survival. Such a low-key return to public life for the legitimate royal does not suggest real confidence in his initial appeal. What is more likely is that this was an attempt to broadcast the seeds of a new conspiracy 
to provide only fragments of a tale of the miraculous return of one of King Edward's sons. A king uncertain of his fundamental supporters might view any contact with rebels as outright treason, making it more likely that the former Yorkists would have nothing left to lose by rebelling. Such a carefully managed conspiracy could cause Henry's deposition without the need for open rebellion and battle. Warbeck's role was probably imposed upon him by his chief mentors, John Taylor and John Atwater. End quote. In other words, this was a vast conspiracy that was and had been in play for a couple of years, and Warbeck is just a pawn in this whole ordeal. He just so happened to be well-educated, of the right age, skilled enough to pass off as kingly, yet nondescript enough that no one would be able to trace his lineage back unless they knew him directly, and few did. He fit the criteria they need, and so overnight Warbeck found himself in secret training to ascend to the throne of England. And I just find it fascinating, in the sense that because we have so little, we have to go on conjecture, and as historians, we try not to do that too often. But it isn't hard to imagine that this was a young boy at the age of 17 who had been pulled into this vast web that he was not prepared for, and he probably felt that he didn't have many ways out of it. And it's pretty hard for me not to have at least a little bit of sympathy for what's about to come. Warbeck's chief coach for training was Stephen Fryon, the former secretary of Edward IV and Henry VII. He helped usher Warbeck to Charles VIII's French court in 1492. It was there that the world began to learn of the discovery of this long-lost Richard. Immediately, this put England at odds with France and Scotland, both who wanted to see Henry VII off the throne. And Henry took all of this seriously. I mean, how couldn't he? Just a scant few years ago, he had been in Warbeck's place, an exile in France with a long shot at the throne. And unlike Warbeck, he had little foreign backing from Brittany and France. His revolution had flourished mostly through local support once he had landed in England. This supposed Richard IV could easily do the same and he had the backing of the French for an invasion of England. But this conspiracy was fairly unknown to the public at the time, even the nobility. Henry barely knew anything besides that a Richard IV was in court in France. He could possibly stop this conspiracy before he started, and he had already had many other reasons to quarrel with France, including counteracting their dominance in Europe. Henry decided to take the fight to France before they could take the fight to him. In October of 1492, he conducted a military expedition to the mainland, landing in Calais and marching to Boulogne. Really, invasion is barely the right word for it. It was large, at 14,000 men. It was the largest English invasion force in the, the 15th century, but as Cunningham writes, quote, most modern historians have agreed that his campaign was little more than a military parade with a brief siege at the end, end quote. Henry had hoped that his invasion would spur other potential enemies of France, such as the Holy Roman Empire, into action, but their response was too slow for Henry. He had also hoped that the attack would give him a foothold to begin another invasion of France on the scale of the Hundred Years' War, but it became clear that the fortifications of the French cities were too strong to fall by winter. He made peace in October after only a few weeks in France. This peace did succeed in ousting Warbeck from France, as Henry explicitly requested as part of the treaty that France stop harboring Yorkist rebels. 
but it also farther destabilized his own home rule. This new fledgling king was already not well-liked by many of the nobility, and now he flounders in France within weeks of an invasion wasting their time and their taxes? Why support such a man when there is a true claimant to the throne just across the channel? What's more, Henry had pulled out of the invasion just as Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire was getting into the war, and Henry's pullout left the empire out on a limb, alone against France. Maximilian was furious. He accused Henry of intentionally sabotaging their attack and violating their treaty of alliance. So was Burgundy, who envied the Tudors and relished the chance at nipping their lineage in the bud. The Yorkist conspirators swiftly recognized that Burgundy and the Empire could be new allies, and in December of 1492, they arrived in Flanders at Margaret of Burgundy's court with Warbeck in tow. There, the conspiracy reached new heights. Quote, John Taylor stoked the fires of a popular rebellion within England by exploiting the disillusionment of military failure against France. He emphasized the miraculous nature of the appearance of a prince, long assumed to be dead, and blended in prophecies and popular tales of the king who will return from overseas to reclaim his throne and unite the kingdom. The amazement and discussion this revelation generated were quickly passed to England by the merchant community. The emergence of a rival whose legitimacy could not be confirmed or denied by the Tudor crown in 1492 revived the entire question of Henry's right to the throne. The conspirators had found fertile ground. End quote. Exactly how broad this conspiracy had grown by March of 1493 is unclear. We do know that multiple Irish, Welsh, and East Anglican lords supported the rebellion, although not overtly. That was suicide. Most of what we know of Warbeck's supporters in the beginning are through spies. It was dangerous enough that in April of 1493, Henry moved his court to Kenilworth with a standing defensive army in case of invasion by Warbeck. But Henry made no official response against the accusations, and to royal supporters it wasn't clear whether this Richard really was the rightful heir. Henry began losing support from royal commissioners such as Sir Humphrey Savage and Sir Robert Clifford, some of the most important nobility in England. And if you're keeping tally, by now Henry is enemies with Scotland, Burgundy, France, the Holy Roman Empire, and Spain. Officially, Warbeck is embraced by Burgundy, and when he accompanied Emperor Maximilian to Vienna in December of 1493, he won his support officially as well. The conspiracy was growing to the point where the nobility in England were forced to make a choice, Henry VII or this new pretender. What makes this whole episode in history is two things. One, who is Warbeck and what was the nature of his rebellion? But two, also, the people who are forced to choose between this new king and, well, a newer one. I mean, early in the decade, it was the transfer of allegiance that had kept Henry alive. Warbeck questioned this loyalty, and in doing so, he thrust every noble family into a difficult question. Which one of these men will keep my family alive? It's a bit like the short story where there's two doors, and one of them has a lady behind it and the other a tiger, but you don't know which one. You're basically guessing completely off of the little information you have trying to put your ear to the door. Sound out which one's which, look to the crowd, and see if somebody indicates one or the other. 
and it's next to nothing. It's a total gambit that you don't open the door and the tiger is behind it. Except even that analogy isn't that great in this case because history is more like a spiderweb of doors. You open one, there's two more behind that one, two more behind each of those, and on it goes. You have no idea which one houses tigers and which ones don't. Think about it. Most of these noble families have survived for dozens, if not hundreds of years, by simply choosing the right doors. But thousands of other families have died out because they had chosen the wrong ones. Every king that had ascended the throne of England could at one time or another be claimed as either the true or the false king, and they just so happened to choose the right one every time. These nobles had chosen Henry VII over the Yorks once already, and it happened to be the right door. What's to say, though, that choosing him again wouldn't yield a tiger? The noble families of England were petrified of choosing the wrong door, and it didn't help their conscience that Henry wasn't willing to negotiate with anyone who even brought up the subject, whether privately or publicly. Quote, the plausibility of Richard of York's reappearance generated real confusion of allegiance as 1493 turned to 1494. The king's use of spies escalated dramatically, but the volume of rumor and evidence coming into the council disguised hard facts that Henry needed to act upon. It was reported that men were afraid to meet and discuss events for fear that misplaced words would lead to imprisonment, or worse. Henry was perhaps conscious that a premature savage attack on the leading suspects might provoke broader unrest. He therefore needed firm proof before acting, but the insidious nature of the conspiracy made it difficult to distinguish loyal from malicious information. End quote. So if you're one of those noble families, you've got to be worried that the wrong word might land you on the chopping block, and because Henry was having trouble finding hard evidence he needed on Warbeck's plans, he was turning to spies to gather the information. Spies infiltrated many of the noble family's households, eavesdropping on private conversations. Henry hauled kinsmen and servants before the royal council in secret, interrogating them and then buying them off with huge sums of money to keep quiet. If they didn't give up the information, sometimes they simply disappeared. Those who were found guilty, put that in air quotes since often there was little information to go on, would be forced to pay bonds to Henry as bail, virtually bankrupting them in the process. They would be forced to work for Henry and rat on their family members just to avoid prison. Good example is that of Sir William Stanley. He had been a Yorkist supporter until Henry took the throne. He was one of the most powerful knights in England. His servants were monitored for weeks, many of them interrogated and forced through this process of bonds to work for Henry. No real evidence existed that could pin Stanley as a conspirator besides his early support of the Yorks, but regardless, Henry engineered the return of a close advisor to Warbeck who stated that on March 14, 1493, Stanley had promised to assist Warbeck with all of his resources. Of course, no such evidence actually existed, but it didn't matter. William Stanley was convicted as a traitor and executed by beheading on February 16, 1495. Now, while this is absolutely an extrajudicial conviction, it also happened to be the right one. His retainers, it turned out, had been aiding Warbeck, and in his castle they found 10,000 pounds in cash, quote, sufficient to keep an invading army in the field for many weeks, end quote. Stanley was just one of the many families that was infiltrated and brought before the royal council under accusations of conspiracy. 
and he was far from the only one who was actively part of Warbeck's rebellion. By 1495, a large number of English cells of conspirators existed across the Highlands, Ireland, and Wales. Meanwhile, internationally, Warbeck had picked up support, and by 1495, he, with a Burgundian army, had launched an invasion that was to land at East Anglica. However, a storm broke up his fleet, and he landed with only 300 men in Kent on July 3rd. Warbeck was under the impression that the area had been declared for Prince Richard, but that was a trick. When the men left their boats and began to climb ashore, they were met by an ambush of longbowmen and a hail of arrows that cut them down to only 120 men. Warbeck escaped with the ships and regrouped in Ireland, where an uprising was already occurring by the Irish Earl of Desmond. Chased by Henry's forces, he disappeared and reappeared in the court of Scottish King James IV in November. There, he continued to foster dissent by sending agents into Northumberland and Cumberland, and turning more royal families for his cause. In September of 1496, his major break came when James IV invaded down into England with an army. Warbeck found support for his cause in the few weeks of campaigning that James did in northern England before he returned for the winter to Scotland. However, that support was muted in the fact that the English North wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea of Prince Richard allied with Scotland. The two countries had warred for hundreds of years, with their homeland as the battleground. Their memories were understandably long. As well, Henry's spies had done well to restrict many of Warbeck's plotters with bonds. Many of these men had been interrogated and forced to accept bonds by Henry. If they tried to back Warbeck now, they would become bankrupt overnight, and their family, not just them, would be extinguished. But Henry's financial extortion came to a head when the people of Cornwall began to protest the heavy wartime taxes in 1497. By mid-May of 1497, they had gathered 15,000 peasants and a handful of nobles from Exeter, Somerset, Taunton, and Wiltshire. Blending support for Prince Richard with the regional anger of Henry's tax demands, they marched on London. Henry scrambled to gather a force, and outside the gates of London on June 16th, a battle commenced. The rebels were outnumbered by almost double their number, and were surprised by Henry's forces in the middle of the night with skirmishing that occurred until morning. They had no cavalry or artillery, and in the compromising position, outnumbered and outgunned, they were slaughtered. The rebel captains were executed on June 27th, their heads boiled, tarred, and spiked on London Bridge, and their bodies nailed to London's gates. While Henry had won the battle, the military challenged to him by mere peasants goaded Warbeck to act. He left for Ireland, and on September 7, 1497, he appeared again in Land's End with only three ships. If Warbeck had played his hand better, his paltry invasion could have been a real threat. He could have coordinated it with the earlier uprising in May and June, or with an attack the Scots had made over the summer. As it was, he still managed to cobble together 8,000 dissenters and conspirators, and he besieged Exeter on the 17th. Cunningham writes, quote, Exeter defied the rebel army of about 8,000 men. Hundreds of rebels were killed trying to break the gates of the city. Twenty-four hours of vicious fighting caused Warbeck to retire to Taunton to lick his wounds. By that stage, the king's three armies had him encircled, end quote. Warbeck knew that there was no way he could survive any forthcoming battle. On September 20th, 
he left with 60 followers and attempted to escape to the coast. Pursued, he took shelter in an abbey where he was surrounded by cavalry and forced to surrender. Warbeck was brought to Henry's court where he was offered his life in exchange for the truth of who he was. Warbeck confessed on October 5th the full details of his impersonation and conspiracy. The conspiracy was broadcast out, and Warbeck was released into royal service, living a life of luxury in the court. Why? Well, simple. The world now knew he was an imposter. He posed no threat. Cunningham writes, quote, The king saw Warbeck as a victim of his more determined managers. Cutting Warbeck off from his sponsors preserved his life and ended the threat of Richard IV. End quote. Warbeck did try and escape in 1498, and was captured and thrown into the Tower of London. Many historians believe that Henry had intentionally laxed his own security so that Warbeck would make the attempt, and Henry could draw out any more potential Yorkish conspirators who would try and support Warbeck. Perkin Warbeck was executed in the Tower for treason on November 16th. He confessed at the moment of execution that he was an imposter to the crowd that watched one of the most protracted and dangerous conspiracies faced by an English monarch come to an end. Now, this hasn't been the grittiest topic we've ever done, but it certainly has been one of the most criminal. I mean, high treason, how much more criminal can you get? But I wanted to highlight it for two reasons. One, is this person Warbeck and just the nature of this conspiracy? The idea that this pretender to the throne was faking who he was all along. But I think the second is the question, what would have happened if he had actually won the throne? I mean, we, we saw that Henry VII had just done it a few years ago in much the same circumstances. This man, Warbeck, who was supposedly Prince Richard, but knew that he was an imposter. What if he had won the throne? What if he had been there? I'm not somebody who likes to play what-ifs all the time, but it did make me pause and question exactly what would he have done? Continued the ruse? Would he have come out and shown that he was not a noble? Probably not, because, well, that would have been extremely dangerous to come out as a false claimant. So he must have wanted to keep up the conspiracy, even though, as we've said before, it seems that he was just a pawn in this whole affair. And if all that had happened, well, then it makes me wonder, how often has this happened in history, how often are the people that we believe to be some rightful heir or claimant turn out to, well, not be? There have been reports that President Trump never wanted to be president in the first place, but this takes it another step farther entirely. It would be like if somebody won the presidency on a completely different name. What if history didn't catch that, and we just believed what he said? Now that's quite a what if. But as they say, ignorance is bliss. And perhaps we, historians, society, have been ignorant. Maybe, perhaps, there might be many other Warbecks in history that we simply don't know about. Pretenders who won the throne and never stopped pretending. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, 
you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com.